Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Okay, if you've got a Bible, do you want to open it up to Luke chapter 8 in the New Testament? It's going to come on the screen just a little bit, um, but if you want to just uh, open that up in your Bibles or on your phones, and uh, we are going to spend our time just in Luke 8 today. In my late teens, so quite a few years ago now, I had the privilege of uh, spending some time in America. I did Camp America. Camp America is this sort of thing that puts on kids' camps for American kids uh, during the summer. Anyone else done Camp America or something similar? Yes, there was one person in the other congregation. Me and you. Yes, Camp America. And uh, for some reason, at the interview, uh, the person... Uh, asking me about what I wanted to do, suddenly came up with the prospect of working in an inner city kids camp. And they asked me, is that something you'd be interested in doing? And for some reason I said, yeah, that sounds great. It wasn't until I got there that I realised what I'd let myself in for. Uh, The facilities were totally run down. The camp itself was sort of on its last legs. All the sort of equipment they had seemed to be broken. We needed to fix it before the kids actually arrived. And then when the kids arrived... As an 18-year-old, like pretty fresh-faced, not experienced much of the world, suddenly I was uh, confronted with pretty tough inner-city kids. Some of the probably toughest kids I've ever met and some of the most broken kids I've ever met. And two memories stand out for me from my time in America. Um, firstly, I was a swim instructor, and so that meant as when the kids arrived, we got them to change into their swimming costumes, and then they all lined up by the pool, and I was in the pool, and they would have to sort of jump in, and that was our swim test. If they drowned, you know, they couldn't swim. If they could, they were fine. Uh, the sad thing that I remember about the swim test was these kids lining up, and in front of me, I saw the scars and the hurt that had been caused by abusive parents and family members. Kids would come in with cigarette burns all over their bodies, bruises, scratches. And it was just sickening to see, just right in front of me, the sort of lives that they led. Second big memory was one boy who was actually left at the camp for the whole of the summer. Kids usually came for one, maybe two weeks. He was left for the whole of the summer. And his name was Bobby Novak. And Bobby Novak was a 10-year-old, very cute kid who was very sort of affectionate. But due to uh, his traumatic past, uh, he would soil himself every day. And uh, most days uh, he would come and sort of nestle up to you, want to just climb on your lap, want to just get close to you. And the smell would hit you. And this boy, he stank every day. And we always faced this dilemma as a team that we wanted to love on this kid, but we knew every time that we did, we just had to face this repellent, sickening smell. Looking back, um, just in no way, shape or form was I prepared for the tragedy and the hurt that I encountered over that summer. Actually, if I'm really honest, I dreaded going to work most mornings. I felt so ill-equipped to handle these kids that just came from a background I knew nothing of. I was actually at the time nowhere spiritually and so I didn't really have anything to rely on. I wasn't really praying, reading my Bible. And I'd actually some days dream of the rich kids camp that I turned out. 
and I heard rumours of these amazing camps where the kids were relatively normal uh, or they were probably actually really messed up but they knew how to hide all their feelings and so counsellors had a beautiful weekend, a beautiful summer playing with great equipment in lovely grounds and enjoying their summer sunbathing where here I was with the broken and the weak and the hurt and the abused. You know, I don't know if I'm right, but I came away from that summer, even though I was far from God, knowing that in some way these summer camps reflected the heart of God. Every time a kid was uh, celebrated or embraced, every time a child was befriended and praised, I felt something of the heart of God behind it. I think Jesus would have been delighted even with our really poor attempts. And I think he especially would have loved Bobby Novak. You know, the reason I say this is that you cannot get very far into the accounts of Jesus' life, which are known as the Gospels, without seeing a Jesus who has a bias towards all that society hates and ignores. The bias is actually very challenging if you do a series called Missionary Jesus. You see, this series, Missionary Jesus, is not only meant to sort of make us wonder at Jesus' skill and absolute genius as he reaches out to people, but we're also meant to see him as an example. He's meant to be a forerunner, a model for what our missionary endeavours look like. Let me just spell that out for you. That means if Jesus is a missionary to people like X, then we probably should pray, give, send and go to people like X too. Everyone with me? If Jesus goes to these people, then we, as his hands and feet, need to go there too. So let's turn to Luke 8 to find out what sort of people Jesus loves to go to. Verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes and he lived or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. So, just back up a bit. Jesus is shattered at this point. He's done a day of ministry. The reason we know he's shattered is that he's asleep in a in a boat, and the boat is in a storm, and the disciples are worried that they're going to sink. These are experienced fishermen, and they are worried. They wake Jesus up and he calms the storm in one word. And it's very hard to imagine this sort of authority someone has to calm a storm with one word. As I was thinking about my authority in this life, the easiest way I can imagine my authority is demonstrated is with my dog. And um, with my dog, if you know Lottie, she's actually pretty disobedient. But I know if I raise my finger like this at her and say, sit a very commanding voice. That was it, by the way. <laughs> sit. She genuinely will sit straight away. That is my sphere of influence in this world. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus is in the boat. The storm and the waves and the wind. And he stands up and says, be still. And suddenly the storm is gone. And as he gets off the boat, he lands on the beach. And at the beach, he meets this man. And he's described as demon-possessed. 
Now, my guess is this man was legendary in the region. You know, if you were a kid growing up in this region, you would know all about this guy. Like your parents would tell you, you know, there is this crazy, naked, out-of-control guy who lives among the tombs. Please, children, do not go near him. People would have given up on this guy. There's no hope for him. He's probably been left to survive on his own. Verse 29 tells us that many times it, meaning the unclean spirit or demon, had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he'd broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. So they tried to shackle him. They tried to contain him and make him safe. But somehow he managed to break out of the chains. The city seems to be very scared of him. Actually, he's wandering around the tombstones, which in sort of, uh, I guess, uh, a Jewish mindset, you would not want to be near dead people. And so being in a graveyard, being near tombstones is something only cursed people would do. Or if you went there, you would become cursed. And so they tend to have these places far outside of town. So this guy was ostracized. This guy was pushed right out onto the edges of the town. Because they simply don't know what to do with him. The reason given for why this man is running loose among the tombstones is actually quite matter of fact. The verses say that he had demons. Now in Jesus' world, and actually for much of the world today, the talk of demons or unclean spirits is pretty common. It's seen as normal people um, uh, were familiar and are familiar with the spiritual realm. And so to talk of certain things happening because of demons is just par for the course. But for many of us in the Western materialistic world, the spiritual realm is often something that is ignored. And therefore, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I, I was hit again by the sort of almost the brutality of this man being described in this way. I wonder if you're left thinking, was this just their way of describing mental illness? Or did this guy have some sort of multiple personality disorder? Or did he actually have demons? Well, C.S. Lewis, who's a famous writer, he famously observed that people make, or often make, one of two errors when it comes to the devil and demons. Some disregard or dismiss the demonic entirely, while others drift into fascination and obsession. And a healthy understanding of demons avoids these extremes, and I agree. And so we're just going to touch on this. As Christians, we do believe in the presence of evil in this world. We do believe in the existence of the devil. And we do believe in the existence of demons. The Bible says these uh, few things about demons. Demons oppose the kingdom of God. They prowl about the earth and even appear as angels of light. But their whole purpose is to corrupt and destroy through lies. And if it's not through lies, it's through accusation. If it's not through accusation, it's through deception or false teaching and even through suffering. In summary, they seek to exalt the dominion of darkness and death and attempt to rob God of the glory that is rightly his. And so this man, who's not yet a Christian, that's important, he's not yet a Christian, has done something to give these lying demons authority in his life. Now, we don't know what. We don't know this man's story. We don't know what's happened to him. Perhaps it, it was habitual, unrepentant sin. You know, he just got into something and just couldn't get out of it and it sucked him in. 
Perhaps it was worshipping false gods. Perhaps it was alcohol abuse. It's not clear. But he right now is in a place where his thoughts and his deeds and his identity are more and more being dominated by an alternative personality. Perhaps by another being, by a demon. Now, um, I I can't emphasise this enough. Uh, Please don't hear that the Bible or I are saying that all illnesses, especially mental illnesses, are caused by demons. There are always physical and chemical and emotional and spiritual elements to people's suffering. And if you've ever got up close with that, it's actually very difficult to know what exactly is happening in someone's life. But I do find it interesting that in the West, we often forget to see the whole person. We tend to focus on their emotions or their physical factors and totally ignore the spiritual aspects of their health. But for this man in the story, verse 30 tells us his diagnosis. He had many demons. Jesus asked him, verse 30, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. A Roman legion had about four to six thousand soldiers. So this is the Bible's way of saying this man had multiple, multiple demons. Now, if you're a Christian here in the room, we believe the Bible says that you can't be possessed or controlled by demons like this man. But rather you can be afflicted or affected by them. I know through many years of discipling people, there are actually many, many ways in which people grow to become more Christ-like. And there are many, many ways in which people struggle to become more Christ-like. And demonic affliction is just one of them. In my experience, this happens when people, when Christians have an area of their life which is just full of unforgiveness or bitterness and they refuse to get through on it. Sometimes it's because of habitual sin, just again, perhaps stuff that's in their life that they just really find hard to let go of and put God first. Sometimes it's to do with a deep pain or a deep shame in their past or in their present. Sometimes it's to do with an involvement in drugs or alcohol or sex. And somehow what happens in the struggle, they find that they are afflicted. There is an air of their life where it's almost like a stronghold, where no matter how much they pray, how much they read their Bible, they struggle to ever experience freedom. They struggle to break the thoughts that are going through their minds. And what needs to happen is they need to be set free by Jesus' power and authority. And I've seen this happen hundreds and hundreds of times. Where people have come and they just, uh, perhaps through discipleship or through specific prayer, perhaps helping someone forgive or repent and sort of, I guess, stop doing certain things and turn the other way. I've seen freedom come multiple, multiple times. It's a beautiful thing to observe. Simply put, they need Jesus to set them free and he's more than able to do this as we see for this man. Look at verse 28 with me. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of him. Verse 31, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So this man falls before Jesus, but in my reading of this, I don't think the man's worshipping Jesus at this point. 
It's rather the demons themselves that are crying out, what do you want, Jesus? You're the son of the most high God. That title, son of the most high God, means that they recognise that Jesus is made of the same stuff as God, like father, like son. And that God, in the form of Jesus, has come into human history. Jesus is the God-man among them. Interestingly, the demons know who Jesus is, but like some people, they don't love him. You see, it's not enough just to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to know that he's the son of God. He needs to be loved as God. And the demons know who he is, but they don't love him as God. And I pray that if you're a guest here tonight, if you're on a bit of a journey towards Christianity, or perhaps you grew up in a Christian home and this, uh, as you've moved to Leeds, is your chance to establish what it is you truly believe. My deep hope and prayer for you is that you do not just know lots about Jesus. That you don't know all the right answers, but rather it moves into relationship. It moves into a love relationship. That you see Jesus as God and you live your life with him in charge of your life. You know, I've got a sad story for you that I'm a little bit embarrassed to share. But when I was 14 years old, every day I'd get the bus and I'd go the same route home. And from the upstairs on the bus, I spotted a girl who I really liked, who waited at the bus stop every day. For weeks this went on with my little mini crush on this girl that I saw at the bus stop till finally I plucked up the courage to say hi. It went quite well. We got into a bit of a conversation and then for the next few weeks, every day I'd see her and every day I'd have a little chat with her. The sad thing was, is I was desperate to tell her that I liked her and I wanted to ask her out. And when the day finally came where I plucked up the courage to make that big ask, I totally failed at the last hurdle and I said, I've got a friend who really fancies you. And I couldn't quite say that that friend was actually me that really liked her. And so for the next few weeks, I had this painful conversation describing how great my friend was and (laughs) how he'd be such a great date and how he really liked her. And I just lacked that oomph to go beyond the finish line and close the deal. My advice... My advice, if I can do this, please don't be a fool like me. Don't be someone who knows about Jesus, who knows so much about him, but never commits, never crosses that line, is too scared to fully say, God, I realise who you are and I want to give my life to you. Don't be as daft as me. It's vital you don't just know who Jesus is. The point is to move to love him. Actually, these demons didn't love Jesus at all. They hated him. They despise him and they know that he's got authority over them. That's why they are asking him to withhold or delay punishment. You see, they're happy to torment this man, but hate to be tormented themselves. So how does Jesus exert this incredible authority over these demons? Well, verse 32, and this is bizarre. A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Oh my gosh. Jesus sends these demons into this herd of pigs. The demons that are bent on destruction end up destroying themselves. Now the presence of the pigs is is pretty interesting. It tells us that this was a Gentile or non-Jewish part of Israel. You see, no Jewish person would keep or eat pigs. And according to Mark's version of this story, this community had something like 2,000 of them. There was a whole industry created around this huge sounder of swine. If you've ever thought late at night to yourself, what do you call a group of pigs? It's a sounder of swine. And sadly, that's all you will remember from tonight in six months' time. What's fascinating with this sound of swine is that Jesus isn't just freeing up the individual, but he's cleansing the whole area. You see, his authority just leaks out. He's making an impact on this town. But they didn't like it. Verse 34, when those tending the pigs the sound of swine. They saw what had happened and they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and people went out to see what has happened. So can you just imagine you have just experienced the pigs filled with the demons jumping off the cliff like lemons into the sea. You would want to run back and tell your mates, wouldn't you? You'd go back and tell them, then they would want to come and see what had happened. That's exactly what happens here. When they came to Jesus... They found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people in the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so he got into the boat and left. It's an amazing transformation, isn't it? From naked, violent, out of control to verse 35, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. The townsfolk were not happy with this transformation. And what's clear is that they love the pigs more than they love the man. So Jesus leaves, not before restoring fully the man's dignity. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. And this is what Jesus loves to do. He is a missionary to someone who's been rejected by everyone, his friends, his family, his community. He's a missionary to the demonically oppressed Someone who had a lifestyle that obviously led him to being trapped with no hope of escape. He's a missionary to those living in a place no Jew would ever want to enter. Jesus saves the whole of him. Just as he calms the wind and the waves from the boat, he calms the man's life and his heart and tells him to share what he had done for him with his nearest and dearest. Jesus crosses the sea to get to him. And he crosses all the social and religious barriers to free him. And then he gives him the task of sharing this freedom with others. Can you see Jesus not only delivers, but he sends. And that, if you're a Christian here tonight, is our hope too. 
If you're a Christian here, you've been delivered. You've been delivered from sin. You've been delivered from judgment. Many of you have been set free from the things that used to hold you. But God doesn't just deal with what's in you. He calls you to a great cause. He sends you out to share the message of hope that you've experienced in your own heart with others. You know, if you're a non-Christian looking in tonight and you're wondering what does it mean to be a Christian, you need to know that it's not just about your shame and your forgiveness being dealt with, which is beautiful by Jesus at the cross, but also there is a huge call into the cause of God. There's a sense in which God says to you, your life is going to be about something different now. I'm giving you something to fight for. I'm giving you something to believe in. Jesus doesn't just deliver, he sends. And he's asking us, Mosaic Church, will we be a church that goes to great lengths to see people like the demoniac restored in the name of Jesus. Will you be that sort of church? You see, if someone asked me that question, my immediate thought would be this. Does that mean, Matt, that tomorrow, at work, at university, in my neighbourhood, I need to find the most deranged, demonised, most dangerous person I can find and witness to them. Well, the challenging response must be, if we don't, who will? The principle is this. Jesus asks all of us to pray or give or send or go to those on the edge of our society. Some will be called specifically to be at the coalface, making this happen each day. And some will be called to support those at the coalface, to encourage them, to give to them, to pray for them. But listen, something needs to happen in here if you're going to be the sort of person that responds to this call and this cause. Because it's a difficult ask. I remember uh, quite a few years ago being in the middle of a packed uh, worship service a bit like this. Uh, at the church uh, we were in at the time, uh, there was uh, a huge ministry to those that didn't have anywhere to stay for the night. And we had a big hostel for guys to stay in. And many would come to our services. And on this particular night, as uh, say, pack crowd, we actually had a visiting speaker. I was there leading the service, wanting, if I'm really honest, to impress the guy who was coming to speak. And in the middle of the worship, it was all going beautifully when out the corner of my eye I noticed one of the most dangerous uh, guys known to the police and to us that we've ever had the privilege of serving in our night shelter. Uh, it's been barred on many different occasions, dishevelled and drunk, was making his way down the aisle to come right to the front. He came to the front and he stood... The worship leader was here, band either side, and he stood with sort of legs apart, arms folded, staring everyone out. And very clearly, he wanted to wait for the music to stop so he'd give the church a piece of his mind. I wonder what you'd do if you were leading that meeting. Would you go up and chat to him? Risking certain death? <laughs> This is what I did. 
I looked at the worship leader and I said, keep playing. <laughs> so I encouraged the worship leader to just keep making a noise. Keep worshipping. Fortunately, and very quickly, a friend of mine got out of his seat and very courageously came to the front and stood next to this guy. He just sort of sidled up next to him and he began a conversation. And that conversation took about 15 minutes or so. The worship leader was running out of songs at this point. But he began a conversation and talked him down and eventually led him off and outside where they could really chat. I guess that evening exposed a number of things in my heart, one of them chiefly being, I really like it when things are safe and cosy. I don't like disruptions. I don't like it when violent people come into a church service. I don't like it when I have to deal with it. I don't like interruptions. I like things all together. I like things nice and cosy. I think in, if I was in this story, I probably would have stayed in the boat. And I know that I'm probably not the only one. I know that many of you know that the church should be one that loves the unlovable. But it's very hard to earth it. It's very hard to live it. So I want to close very quickly by giving you four things to think about. Number one, would you pray? If you want to be someone who embodies the example of Jesus, then a great place is to pray. A great place to start is to pray. Pray for our city. Pray for some of the great charities in Leeds and in Yorkshire that work with the vulnerable. Uh, I think I was down in Beeston this morning at our South Gathering. They've got the Shine Nail Bar. Pray for that brilliant charity. Pray for Space, which is a charity working, sharing the gospel with young people. Pray for CAP, Christians Against Poverty, helping to bring people out of debt. Pray for Joanna, which is a charity working with some of uh, our street workers and prostitutes in town. Pray for Leeds Faith in schools, people giving themselves to school kids and sharing the message of Jesus. Pray for Cielo, which is a coffee shop in town, but is really committed as a social enterprise to give young people who wouldn't normally get work experience a chance to take that first step into their careers. Let's pray as a church for these great people and great charities. Pray for a new day of fruitfulness as well as faithfulness, that they would see the breakthrough that they desire so much in these people's lives and that each worker would be encouraged, would be equipped in what must be a very, very pressurised and difficult and sometimes scary place to serve. So listen, perhaps just Monday, as you get up tomorrow and you dedicate your first bit of your day to God, when just take a small bit of that to, to pray for someone you know that does that work. Pray for the people that they're working with and working alongside. Just ask God to start to move your heart towards them and he will share his heart with you. Secondly, and this really is challenging, but would you give? Would you give your money to our work amongst those that society rejects? In the past, as a church family, we've given large sums of money to things like Holbeck Food Bank, which provides food for those that just don't have anything left to eat. Uh, to Job Club, which gives people a leg up into their first job. 
to Kids Club, Transformation Leads, working amongst international students, Cielo, as I've mentioned. We've given abroad to places like Ukraine and Zambia and Syria. You know, if I could ask anything of you tonight, is that we would love you to give what you've decided to give to the local church. For many of you that are working, then you guys know that our heart is to be always moving towards tithing, which is giving 10% of what we have. And for you that are students or not earning, we say to you, you know, would you have a generous lifestyle? Would you sacrifice in order to give? We say, first of all, give to the local church, and that obviously goes to everything that we do, but we in turn give 10% of all that comes into us away. But beyond that, and secondly, I would say, if we are to be a generous people with a heart for the poor, I would ask you to all think about how can we give beyond what we give to the local church. It might be that there are people that you feel particular affinity for. You know, Jesus said this in Luke 12. It's very helpful. This is the message version. He says, be generous. Give to the poor. Give yourselves a bank that can't go bankrupt. A bank in heaven far from bank robbers, safe from embezzlers. A bank you can bank on. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. What Jesus is saying is that if you invest in the poor, your heart will follow. And what you spend your money on will increasingly be what you care about and the place you want to be. So to see that transition, if you like, I just don't want to be amongst the poor but I know God's calling me that way. It may be that it starts with you giving. And as you give, then your heart is impacted. As your heart is impacted, then maybe you want to be near or with those that you're giving to. And you've managed to cross a few barriers there so your heart and your body are aligned. Seriously, some of you have got resources here that need to be released to the poor. And it might be as simple as you go to the back, there's a giving form up there and you set up a standing order and you start giving to the church. For some of you, if you want to give specifically to certain people, to certain charities, you can even you know, go on the website and fill in a form, send us an email and we'll make sure it gets there. You know, for some of us, this is perhaps our response to what we've heard. Thirdly, let's send. I'm nearly finished. Let's send. Let's send our friends in Mosaic that work amongst the vulnerable of society. So if you know any nurses or carers or support workers or social workers or counsellors or policemen and women or teachers or charity workers or youth workers or debt advisors or foster parents, just to name a few amongst us, then it is our privilege to send you guys onto the front line. We want to send you with our blessing and our love. We want to honour you. You know, in seasons past, uh, the church believed that there was a secular sacred divide that meant some bits of life really counted. So the bits you do for church, the bits that you do on a Sunday, they're like really holy. And then the rest of your life, well, that's just secular. It doesn't really count. But in God's kingdom, it all counts. It's all important. And so for many of you that are involved on the front line dealing with the underprivileged, you need to know our full blessing and our commissioning and honouring of what you do and what you bring. So you need to have confidence that we are sending you on our behalf. 
And we hope that we can be your friend, we can be a safe place as you deal with violence, as you deal with disappointment, as you deal with stress. And so listen guys, we're to send, we're to send people to the poor and broken hearted. And lastly, we're to go. I want to encourage new mission groups to start the desire to go to the unwanted and the unfashionable. You know, that's the beauty of our small group system is you, if you have a passion, if you have a desire to reach a certain people group or to make a difference in society, all we say to you is make sure you've got good godly character. Find a couple of friends that share the passion and then we, we will give you all the support we can to see that mission group started and being effective. And that's happened multiple times over the years in this church. Perhaps it's as simple as not starting something from scratch, but supporting something that already exists. Things like Job Club and Transformations Leads and Kids Club, they're always desperate for people to volunteer and help out. They will train you, they will give you what you need, and all the infrastructure is set up so you can just go and do something. And for some of you tonight, that is the outworking of this message, is that you go You don't just talk about it, you don't just pray about it, but you go. You know, Missionary Jesus encourages us to pray, give, send and go to the brokenhearted, to the captives and to the least of these. And my hope and prayer, because this is our fourth big value as a church, to love the underprivileged, that we are not people that just talk about it and not just think it's a good idea but we lend the full weight of what we are as a church community to this area of society. If we don't go, who will? If we don't go, who will? So I'd love to pray for us. Thank you for listening so well. I hope that um, something of the heart of Jesus has come across as he's ministered to this man whose society counted as worthless and hopeless. And that you're feeling a stirring in your hearts for the poor and underprivileged. Do you want to stand with me? We're going to sing. But I'd like to pray first. Do you want to close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you as we look at Jesus. We see what you're like as a father of compassion. You're full of mercy. And in you, Jesus, is great authority to bring life and freedom and hope to all those that don't have it. Thank you, Jesus, that many of us here tonight can say, you've done it in me, that you've set me free, that you've released me. And God, we want to hear afresh your call tonight to be sent. Lord, please call many of us to pray, many of us, many of us to give, many of us to send, and many of us to go. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.